Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. Dr. Brian Cummings, thank you for coming on today. It's a great pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So today we're talking about your book, uh, Bibliophobia, um, the end and the beginning of the book, which I love that little twist is starting with the end. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your own professional journey, um, how you got interested in um, Renaissance history, and, uh, and then how, what made you write this book? Okay, I mean, um, there's a, there are obviously long and, and short versions to those things. I mean, I, I suppose um, the thing that connects both questions is uh, one's own history as a reader. So I suppose like, you know, like lots of people, I can remember uh, when I was read stories by my parents, and I can remember another moment when I was given books that were sort of my own. Um, and I, I, perhaps the first two books I remember having in my hands and thinking of this is me, as it were, were retellings of, um, of Greek myths. And this is a very common story. I mean, Joyce, James Joyce started, you know, started with The Adventures of Ulysses by Charles Lamb and, 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 it, and it led to the greatest novel of the 20th century. But uh, yeah, in, in my case, um, beginning with those weird stories of, of Greek gods, Hermes and the, the messenger god, Apollo, the god of poetry, and uh, you know, Odysseus going on his, his wanderings and uh, never, never managing to get home, never managing to find a successful conclusion to, to his own life. Um, that, that set me off. Um, I suppose I was in a family of scientists and, and I expected to become a scientist, as it were, you know, going through school, that's what I expected to be interested in. But I had a, a brilliant teacher of English at school. Again, it's a very, very common story. Um, and I was surrounded by friends who wanted to do classical Greek and Latin. And so I ended up um, towards the end of school with that sort of mix of things, although I did maths as well as a sort of tribute to my mother. Um, and then I went, uh, I went from there to, to Cambridge, where I read English um, and uh, was interested in a lot of different things. But the question that I formulated to become to begin an academic career was a conundrum about why nobody talked about the relationship between religion and literature, in at least in the, in the discipline of English, that is, um, and especially why did nobody talk about the Reformation, which was a you know massively important historical uh, area uh, and dom dominates every other you know anybody else writing about the 16th century, um, whether it's on music or art, never mind on politics. Uh, we'll talk about the Reformation very centrally, whilst nobody talked about it in relation to literature. So um, mm. that became my my question, um, although I wasn't approaching it from the way that a historian of religion would, or for that matter, a theologian. Those were those are disciplines that I tried to become expert in, but they were not my own home disciplines, and I wasn't from a religious family at all. I was from a very atheistic, uh, scientific family. Um, so it was a kind of arcane question for me. But I wanted to work out what it was 
that um, that might be not 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 only what might part might religion play in a history of literature, but also in what way might the history of religion be literary? Um, and the answer is, mm. of course, that it's a, it's it's a textual area. All of the world's main religions, at least to some extent, and unusually to an, an enormous extent, are textual traditions. Um, which involves storytelling, which involves interpretation, uh, all the things which are central to uh, to thinking about literature in a in an academic context. So that became my kind of big question. I thought it was going to take me, you know, the usual thing, three four years for a doctorate. Instead, I've been nagging away at these problems for for you know whatever it is, but a long time now, 30, 40 years. Absolutely. Uh, as you talk here. Um... I'm reminded uh, the way I got, uh, I went from religious studies to philosophical hermeneutics because a lot yeah. of the questions re revolved around interpretation. And in fact, if you look at the history of interpretation, even hermeneutics as a discipline went from being philosophical, you know, you look at, uh, and it's probably anachronistic to call uh, hermeneia by uh, Aristotle uh, hermeneutics, but um, you see it go from philosophical to become purely theological. Hermeneutics always referred to the interpretation of the Bible in, in European history, and then it broadened back out again. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it's, it's a fascinating, it, obviously when you talk about the Reformation, that's going to radically change uh, interpretation and it's going to radically change text. Yes. Um, yes. So talk to us a little bit about the, one of the central questions, at least at the start of the book was, what is a book? And I think this will really help a lot of our um, listeners. As I was talking to a friend of mine about the book that I was reading, I could see that most people, and this is another big thread for uh, what you've written, that uh, we don't think about how important books are in our lives, right? We don't think about how important, like how embedded writing is into our very like subconscious. And so uh, he had never even really considered what a book was. And so, you know, we often think of this, but it becomes immediately, uh, you know, the, for those of you who are listening, it's the, the hardcover, the, the copy. But we don't think about the fact that the book is more an idea and more a, uh, a unit of organization than the actual yep. uh, format. So can you talk yes. to us a little bit about that thread through your book? Sure. Yes. I mean, I'm. I, I think a, a lot of us are taught to think of of books in very in instrumental terms as as being simply uh, the thing that you know you put things into, um, and, and therefore uh, the the place where you look for ideas and for information, and also for lots of pleasure and so on. But you don't really think a bit of it as, as something which is an object itself in your life. I think there's a parallel with the way that. The history of philosophy, on on the whole, has tended to think about language fundamentally in uh, in spoken terms as the first thing to talk about. And many philosophers would 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 begin and end with with the spoken. Uh, and of course, linguistics now as a as a as a science would tend to think primarily. Or in fact, I would say ninety six to ninety seven percent of linguistics would be thinking about spoken language, even though it's its format might be written. In fact, it almost always will be in terms of books. Uh, itself, so th there is a question about whether writing and, and the book are, 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 in a way, things that are so obvious and surround us so much that we don't even think about them in in their own terms. 
I mean, it, you asked the question before, how did I first become interested in writing this book? And, and uh, it, it began with various kinds of sort of quite casual moments of, um, that were quite profound for me. Um, and the first ones were always about book destruction. So I, hmm. uh, when I was a graduate student, I was working on a, a lot on Erasmus from a, from a literary point of view and, and Luther from a, a kind of religious point of view and their, and their conflict and why, why that conflict was so important. So I went to an because there have been a lot of Luther ex, uh, anniversaries in the past <laughs> over my life, and it just so happened that my doctoral studies coincided with one of these anniversaries. And there was an exhibition in, in the Cambridge University Library which finished with a burned book. And the the story behind this is that is that Luther did burn books very famously uh, at a moment of sort of self declaration as as a heretic um, in 1520. Um, and uh, but it looked as if this was a book from 1520 that was burned in front of me, and it had quite a, it had a very very powerful emotional effect upon me of thinking I might be in the presence of something that was treated with such you know strange violence 500 years ago. Then I went to see the curator of the exhibition. Uh, who said, who was very embarrassed about him and said, "Well, actually, it's not a, it's not a Lutheran book. It's not a 16th century book. It's not a book in German or Latin. It, it's, uh, it's a book from the Nottinghamshire Water Records of the 1860s that we happen to have a spare of, and we thought it'd be fun to set fire <laughs> to it, uh, and then put it in an exhibition to show people what a burned book looked like." Now, of course, this this maybe makes it as a, a story about you know fake history and so on, but. Actually, again, I thought there was something more interesting involved in this. What what makes a what makes a mm. librarian burn a book, um, and what is it about the object that I was feeling such strange, uncanny connection with? And of course, on the one hand, we all know that book destruction is a, is a you know it's a very important topic in the history of censorship. The most powerful image in the history of censorship is the uh, are the, the Nazi book fires of of, uh, of the nineteen thirty three, especially in Openplatz in 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 Berlin, where there is a very very moving modern memorial to as a kind of ghostly library uh, in the ground. And uh, again, I suppose people think that censorship is about the ideas that are censored, and the books are simply instrumental in that relationship. But my immediate feeling was that actually book destruction is about something else. It's it's ritualistic for a start. Mm. People do it in a very staged way. It's a it's a sort of pageant. It it has you know it's a visual representation of destruction rather than just destroying something. It's not actually a very practical way of destroying books at all. But it also perhaps hints at something darker and deeper in our relationship with a book, which for me is summed up by uh, a Latin word, which is the word sacca. So it, it, it's the easiest translation for it is sacred, but there are two different sorts of meaning within, uh, within Latin around it. One is that it's something that you treasure, but the other is that it's something that's forbidden. So it, it is both something that you have to disown, but that you value at the same time. And that captures to me very strongly how we feel about books. We may not ourselves... Uh, very often think about the object now in quite such terms. But we all know that holy books have been preserved and kept in a very fetishistic way through thousands of years of history now. And we also know that sometimes books are 
are, are burned. And hey presto, my my first year of teaching in a university, teaching literature in a university, Salman Rushdie's uh, Satanic Verses was was burned in in, in Bradford in in my own country, uh, and uh, the fatwa was was made to. To, to give permission to to, to kill the author. Uh, now, the, the killing of the author is what, one kind of horror, but the burning of the book is another kind of horror, and, and, and I think they are interesting related. Um, and again, I think it gives you a sense that there's something much more at stake in, in our relationship with books, both in a positive and in a negative way, than is in, ever implied by simply thinking of them as instrumental. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Even as, uh, are, are we in the realm of Rene Girard when you're talking about uh, Sacker and uh, uh, the term scapegoat comes to mind? Uh, am I in yeah. the right uh, we, we, realm we, we, of thought? We yes, area. that, that mean, makes sense. The, the term has been hijacked by Agamben and, and, and the book Homo Sacker, which, and, I, and I'm not really thinking about it in, in, in those terms. Um, but I am thinking about it in those terms of the scapegoat. Um, it's quite similar in that way to, again, very ancient uh, concepts in relation to folly, um, the, 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 the jester, the madman, um, the, the person who speaks a profound truth that nobody else is allowed to speak, but who also therefore exists outside of the law um, and doesn't have the law's own protections for that matter. So, um, and, and, and again, all, all, although these things change over history, what I, what I became fascinated by was that actually you can find these things in all over the world and all over history. Um, and so, although I began by being interested in European things and, and you know the Reformation, or for that matter, very quickly I became very interested in the digital revolution, how it related to uh, to the printing revolution. These were very important questions to me, but I very quickly became aware that if I was ever going to write a book about this, it would have to be uh, a book that went way out of my comfort zone in terms of things that I know about. Um, and so, you know, I, I, it hasn't just taken a long time to write because there's a lot of things to think about in it. Um, but it's also because it became a kind of journey for me. I had to travel to places, I had to see things, I had to encounter things that I was not familiar with. And I very deliberately wanted to write about, uh, you know, a, a, what we now call global history, although it wasn't really called that when I started. Um, I wanted to talk yeah. about, uh, as it turns out, all seven of the world's great religions, not just you know the, the three that I'm most familiar with. Um, and that that was important to me, but I think it was also important to to generalise the topic of what a book is. Most books, most book history is very Eurocentric, although most books are not European. Hmm. No, that's a good point. Uh, just to return real quick, there does seem, and I, I don't have a completed thought here, uh, but that, that link between the sacred and transgression and really that violence seems to be tied in, in sacrifice, right? So when we talk about yes. Luther burning that book, that was him opening up a new space for a new religious community. And it has those ritualistic, I mean, you mentioned ritualistic, but also there's like a, a sacrificial, yeah. uh, a, like a, a, a death to a certain form of discourse when he, when he does yeah. that. And I believe what he was burning, uh, at least to start with, were like the papal bulls, right? And so he is sacrificing that papal authority. Am I tracking with you there? Is that making sense? 
You are, although there is actually, funnily enough, a big argument about which books he burned. Um, and okay. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Papal Bulls is one candidate. The, the, the Canon Law is another candidate. So uh, the, the huge ah. um, uh, complex uh, discourse of, of law that, that within the Catholic Church. But the, also on the day, he was going, supposedly going around the theology faculty saying, you know, can we have some spare copies of Thomas Aquinas or whatever? Uh, and you know <laughs> the librarians in that case were not were not very keen for him to sort of uh, to destroy textbooks from 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 the library. But I mean, again, it's an interesting thing that in relation to the the 1933 fires in Berlin and and on all over Germany, people tend to think that there were lists of censored books that were singled out and then and then burned. But although that was the project, they just wanted a lot of books, and they started just going round libraries or just just asking for people to sort of donate books just so that it could make the fire bigger um and there is something banal wow. and, and random about book burning which is but but also there is this sense of um of, of the extraordinary uh public emotion that there is about well what is it here that we are setting fire to um and what relationship does it have to ourselves and i think that's that's where mm -hmm. i'm trying to get at. i think actually the book is much, much more significant uh, to our sense of ourselves. And, it, and that might even be a reason why religions are founded on books. Uh, of course, of course the, uh, the, the, the story that religions tell about themselves is that the divine either writes the book or perhaps in some way is contained in the book. And that, of course, is something that people can believe and, 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 and could even be true. Um, but my sense is actually that the relationship might even be the actual reverse, that the reason why religions um, attach themselves to books is because of something about the book, um, not because of something about religion. So that the book is something which, which appears to contain ourselves um, and yet is not the same as ourselves. So it, it has a kind of um, mirror uh, process around it, around what, what consciousness might be, what being might be. Which isn't at the same time is not uh, it's not spelt out for us. It's it's a relationship that we sense without being able to understand completely. And I I, I think in that sense of every book contains a kind of mystery, um, uh, both as you open it because you don't yet know what it's going to contain, but also as you read it because the process of understanding is itself in some way a mysterious process of transference. And again, the book provides a sort of physical um, symbol and metaphor of that, uh, but it's um, uh, it, it, it's more than just a question of language as communication or language as as meaning or or, or truth or whatever it might be. I mean, it's, it's odd to say that it's more than that, but I think it is more than that. We 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 sense that the truth might be there within it, but we also sense that we don't know quite how we get from us to that truth and there is always that sense of residue and mystery about that uh, about that transaction or that trajectory that trajectory uh paul record in uh the first volume of time and narrative talks about the three types of mimesis yeah. right um yeah. and so you have pre-configuration configuration and reconfiguration i think that's uh, I could be wrong in those three titles, but basically yeah, you right. have your understanding that. of the world. Yes. 
you have your understanding of the world, the world, excuse me, the word. Wow, that's a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> but uh, famous one. But you come to <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, so you have this pre-configuration uh, where you come to the book with your own understanding, and that that's always a fascinating thing. People don't realize how many subliminal clues they bring to a book and what they expect from the book. But then the book always surprises. And as it does it, it only does it by the way that you constitute it in your head. And it actually yes. acts on you as it does that. Um, and then you move from there to how you're going to apply what you've read to the world. And we do this with fiction too, which is I think something people yes. don't realize. And so what's, what's sacred about the book would be that it orders your mind, right? It does... Um, it, it never leaves you unchanged, uh, even if it's a bad book. That's one of my favorite uh, pieces of writing advice from Stephen King is it's as, just as important to read some bad books as to read good books. And I actually yes. did find that super helpful <laughs> for my own writing. I'm like, okay, I actually can write something good because this person has been published and it's, it's phenomenally and, bad. Uh, it's terrible. It's just <laughs> terrible. Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, it, 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 it cheers us up, but at the same time, it gives us something to aim for. But I, I, th I think that also, I mean, uh, I think that the book has an object, which is a, it, it's, a, it's a strange kind of mimetic device in itself. And this is what I mean, I think recur is very, very interesting mm. for this, but that's from a theoretical point of view. If you just think about the book as an object for a moment. Um, it's, you know, throughout history, not surprisingly, but again, it's an interesting thing. Um, formats are around about the size of two hands. Uh, they're sometimes much bigger for display purposes, and they're sometimes much smaller because of the fascination with making something small. But the convenient size um, is to be the size of two hands. And uh, one of the reasons why the codex has been so powerfully important in the history of books, I mean, even within book history, the codex basically is what a paperback is. Um, the, the word tends to be used of, of, of old and precious manuscripts, but it, it's, the, it's the technology that was invented in the early century CE and became very, very popular first for um, the Gospels and then later for the Quran. And uh, why is the format so powerful? I suppose, well, it's partly because it is portable and usable, but I think it's also because it has this sort of mimetic relationship to us. We have something in front of us that feels as if it is in some sense the contents of our mind, because while we are reading, the book is the content of our mind. Uh, we may be distracted by something, uh, you know, the, the cat might come into the room, but, uh, but basically while we are in the book, we are part of the book and the book is part of us. Um, and in that sense, it provides a sort of mirror for our sense of our own consciousness as being separate for ourselves, from ourselves, that we, uh, we, which is odd, but which I think we do feel that we are both the subject and the object of our own uh, minds and our own conversations. Uh, and the book becomes both subject and object at the same time. I think you're absolutely right about the thrill of the bad, but I, I, I want to say actually not just from the point of view of um, bad books as, as, as books that are badly written, but books that, books that you, you are worried about or perhaps slightly fearful of because you think they might mm. be very important. 
So an example for me around about the age of 18 is is Freud's Die Traumdeutung, so the interpretation of dreams. And, you know, I, I was kind of worried about what would happen if I read the book, you know, uh, would I understand? Would I, would I understand it at all? That was obviously a big worry. Uh, but also, would I understand <laughs> stuff that I didn't really want to understand about myself as a result of reading mm. it? And you know, the, the wonderful thing for me now, looking back, is how the uh, one wonderful thing about that amazing book is its title page, um, w- w- which falsely declares that it's it's the book of 1900 because 1899 didn't sound as sexy as two th- as as 1900 <laughs> would uh, but the other thing is that it has an epigraph from, from Virgil's Aeneid and from the story of Troy uh, which roughly translated is something like if I can't move heaven I will raise hell uh, and mm. that is what the book does it, it 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 tries to explain something that is important and true about us but it knows that it's something that we will probably reject about ourselves even as we read it and even as we think we're making sense of it. Um, and I think that books have that power, uh, as you say, you said earlier, a, a sort of transgressive power, which is related to their sacred power. It's not, I mean, religion li- likes to make opposites of things so that heresy is the opposite of truth, uh, but actually heresy is, is profoundly important to all religions in terms of how they formulate and begin, begin to formulate a sense of truth. It tends to be that you need to encounter the dark secret in order to be able to make any, make any sense of anything. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's interesting as we distinguish between conversation, even like as we're having now, and, and a book, that whatever you confront in the book that is uh, transgressive is something you have to confront in yourself because you are constituting the thinking. Right. And so, uh, and this actually goes back to an earlier conversation that I've had with uh, Dr. Michael Clune um, about uh, uh, in defense or a defense of judgment is that one of the powers of of literature, and I would say books in general, but especially literature, is it gets us, um, you know, and I think empathy is too weak of a word, but it allows Mm. us to uh, increase, not increase to grow in our moral understanding by uh, getting us to um, lift our moral foundations, our, to uh, relax our moral values with the opportunity to learn new moral values. And so even mm-hmm. as you, you talk about this, it's, uh, that's scary, right? That's like, that is transgressive because you, there are things that you hold sacred. And when you're confronted with a book, you can put it down at any time, right? And people do do that. But it's something that you are confronting yourself because the book will not, uh, like, if I'm talking to somebody, I, I'm going to have, I'm going to be gauging their reaction. You don't get that with a book. You are constituting the argument within yourself, and in that sense, yes. I think it's more transgressive than a pure conversation. Does yes. that make? Am, am, is that the well, that what we're talking good. about? I think that absolutely makes sense to me, and and, and also fits with 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 my sense of of the question. I mean, if we, if we go back to that question of, you know, why it is that philosophy and linguistics is often obsessed with, uh, with, with speech, um, I mean, obviously, there are all sorts of reasons why that is the case. But there are, there are two things that come out of it which are maybe slightly problematic, um, immediately problematic. Um, one is that if, if we want to think about this in core terms, and, and linguistics is, is, you know, talks about a, a core group of words now that we all have, it's a very small number. 
um, it might be between 50 and 400 words that, that we need to do most of the things that we think we want to do. So if we're going to take mm -hmm. that instrumental view of language, we're talking about a very small part of our vocabulary. And although, of course, there are all sorts of ways of pick, picking up a much larger vocabulary, and most people have a much larger vocabulary of that, one of the main ways of doing that is through reading. And reading is a very fundamental activity. It's a very common activity. Uh, it certainly hasn't disappeared with the internet. It's actually, in some ways, become more, more mandatory than ever because we, we you know, we, we use our smartphones every, or at least, at least I do, uh, you know, obsessively, uh, manically, um, fetishistically. I, I have, obviously have a problem with my smartphone, <laughs> uh, but one of the problems is that I'm just always reading, like, reading stuff I don't want to read on the whole, right. like about British politics and all sorts of horrors <laughs> uh, in, 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 in the world. But I, I feel it's myself so drawn to it. And reading is, um, oh, yeah. is a different thing from speaking. Um, it, it provides an, a, a separation mm. between yourself and the text. We, we tend to think about communicative models, of, models of, of, of thinking, especially in relation to the internet, which again, I think are wrong. Uh, I don't think communication is mm. on the whole what's happening through the internet. I mean, all sorts of things are happening. Uh, but, but communication is too simplistic a model for it. Um, and uh, in some ways, some of the, it's some of the ambiguity and, 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 and difficulty of, of, of writing and reading as objects of study that, that I think gives them a, a better chance of explaining what, what, what we're doing when, uh, when we're thinking through language. Uh, you mentioning the internet, definitely. I, I want to make sure we touch on that uh, yeah. in this interview. Uh, what do you think is happening on the internet if it's not purely communication what is that what is that more extended model that you think is happening or at least i understand like here, can you just explain the internet to me uh, that's probably a little too much but <laughs> what, what what are some paths forward that are apart from that uh, obviously i can't and I, and I bet you you know a lot more about it than i do um I, you know i've had to learn stuff that is not natural to me to learn. Although I think at some level, my mother sitting on the, on the kitchen table trying to show me how a computer worked when I was, you know, about eight, uh, you know, is part of this. Um, you know, she, she tried to teach me yeah. computer languages when I was small. But uh, no, if we get back to the question that you're asking, I suppose we, um, one of the questions that I've had to face in writing the book is, has the digital revolution changed everything? in such a way that actually hmm. what we're dealing with is a fundamentally different object from anything from before. And I think most people have tried to think about it in that way. That's why the, 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 the sort of glib phrase, the death of the book, became very popular for quite a long time. There was an idea that we would, we would throw away books and we would use computers instead. And that this would be perhaps a very different way of thinking. Uh, a lot of people talked about I mean, uh, in ways that go back a long way uh, about how with a computer you're working visually rather than verbally. There was a lot of talk about left side of brain and right side of brain by people who have no idea what that means. Um, <laughs> within, within that, I, I suppose I kept on thinking, no, this is not a fundamentally different thing. This is a similar thing with profound differences that are going to make mm. a lot of change in our lives. Um, the similarity, I suppose, you can see is that um, media revolutions involving writing are, are very, you know, they've happened throughout history. If we look through Chinese history, if we look through uh, the, the history of, uh, of, of the Semitic religions, um, if we look through 
the printing, the printed book, uh, we can we can find very obvious examples of ways in which changes in format have changed the ways in which we do things and therefore the way in which we think about things. Um, and there's been lots of really, really important work in the, in the history of ideas about these sorts of questions. And you can think that the internet in some ways is the same but to the power N um, because it is, uh, it's a format which actually makes the main experience non-physical at some level, again, which, which, we, which we don't really understand. We have a screen in front of us, but we don't realize that it's made up of, of digital relationships and, 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 and algorithms and mathematical uh, formulae, which are quite beyond most of us. But nonetheless, it produces something which is text, and so we can understand how that might work in, in textual terms. I think there are, there are two things that, that the computer has done, neither of which anybody really quite realized beforehand was going to happen. Um, one is to do with a kind of the power of, of omniscience, if you like. Um, the idea of the library is a very, very old idea. And I talk about in the book about Ashurbanipal's library in Sumeria in, in you know, several centuries uh, BCE, uh, which like, a, like the Pentagon now is, is a place which tries to know everything that is going on so that if we need to find somebody, we can find them and we can do stuff to yeah. them. That's exactly what the purpose of Ashurbanipal's library was. But what he asked for was, I want everything. I want a library that contains mm. all of the books that are known. So it's a very, very old idea. And, and now it goes, you know, it has its survivals in the Library of Congress or the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris or wherever it might be, or the, li the library in Beijing. Um, books which aspire to omniscience and in some ways given an, an idea of the idea of knowledge as a totality, um, which is uh, apparently an unachievable thing. But again, the internet has, on the one hand has done that to the power N because we now measure it in, in zettabytes. And I think a zettabyte is a trillion gigabytes. And I think most books oh, you know, could be could be printed in, in gigabytes, but uh, and so the Library of Congress, I, I, th you know, I think I've done tried to do the maths, but it's it's really tiny in comparison to what we're now projecting as the sum of all knowledge. So at the same time, though, although you might just think it's a numbers game, it's also a different entity because a library only appears to contain everything, whilst in some sense you could say that the the World Wide Web could contain. Uh, a more powerfully theoretical model of what the entire entity of knowledge is. And then you can have it in front of you and available to you and yet have access to only, of course, the tiniest, tiniest fractional because it's your relationship to it mm. is so existential. So that, that, that's the one thing is I think the existential question about what the totality, totality of knowledge might be. But the other thing I think, which was a total surprise, and in a way, is a, is a sort of commercial accident, which again I describe in the book, but not from me actually. It's from Shoshana Zuboff's brilliant book on on surveillance capitalism, um, mm -hmm. where, where she describes the um, the moment when uh, Google realised how to make money, which is that you know they, right. they come up with a search engine. It was a great idea. It worked brilliantly, and then everybody started looking for answers to questions on who wants to be a millionaire. And at this point, clever guys in Google, I'm afraid they were guys, uh, they sort of thought, oh, hang on a minute. 
we now know what everybody wants. And we know what everybody wants by the questions that they ask on Google searches. Now, it's become much more uh, you know, vast than this, but it's become the driver of all the things that, um, many of the things that we're really worrying about now, about how the, uh, the computer works biometrically. It, um, it looks as if it's a tool for us to use, but it's actually a way of identifying us through the way that we use it. And that, of course, applies to Facebook, but it also applies to governments. Uh, you know, just just in the last, you know, you just think of pick out any new story you want to find. A story yesterday uh, that was going the rounds in Britain was about how through um, through the pandemic, children were being taught at school uh, on on the internet, and so that information of what they were looking for, what they were being taught, but also their own private information is now, you know, available. Somebody owns it, and it's not the children in question. It's obviously a profound question of privacy, and I think the book has always raised questions of privacy. And governments have always looked to books to find people that it wants to find, and it wants to do nasty things to. And that's not just a question of books that people write, you know, the books by heretics, you know, whether it's Luther or Freud or, or, or in the case of the Chinese emperor in the third century BCE, uh, you know, the, 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 the many Confucian texts uh, that were available. So there is that question of persecuting writers, but there's also persecuting readers. Um, people have been um, arrested and in some cases sentenced to death just for reading books, not for writing them. Um, and there, there is something odd going on in that because why on earth would you punish somebody for reading something? Um, but I suppose that is, that is why reading and why books are such dangerous, dangerous thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even as you talk here, uh, there's a lot of discussion on the hermeneutic side about how signs are not just about letters. There are other things as well. Um, to give people some context, uh, with meta, uh, Facebook moving into this virtual yes. world. One of the questions of privacy yeah. is, uh, no matter how anonymous you are, uh, they read your eye movements and they can actually identify yeah. you by your eye movements in how the incredible. virtual world. And so yeah. not only that you have the signs being read of, uh, you know, what you put in as your name, but literally your entire face is read as a text. So that's uh, kind of an interesting twist to this is that, you know, even as we talk about zettabytes of, of data, we're talking about video and personal identities and everything is becoming a, a text, which even when you think about books, pictures show up in what we normally think of as, as uh, books, codexes uh, in that yes. format. Um, yeah. One of the... I mean, the uh, interesting thing is... One of the things right. I... I'll just I'll just respond to what what you said there, and then then you can come back with the, with with the point you're about to make. So, one, sure. of, the, one of the things I think that's profoundly interesting here is the um, the the disjunct, if you like, between what Facebook or now Metaverse is is trying to do and what it says it's trying to do. So, if you listen to what Mark Zuckerberg oh. talks about, he uses a, he uses a very narrow communication based theory of how language works. Um, and, and, and in a way is saying that Facebook is just a multiplication of that. And then he also uses, of course, a very simplistic 
uh, notion of relationship um, uh, of, of how um, the internet you know, unifies us, unites us, and so on. Now, of course, we all know that the algorithms are actually finding that we hate each other uh, and are finding that hate is much, much more profitable than love. <laughs> Uh, and and right. so all of this stuff is deliberately encouraged. Now, I, I mean, obviously, I'm making fun there, but it, it, there is a profound point within this that a model of communication is used in order to dull the senses so that we don't realize uh, how much more fraught the relationship is between ourselves and, and even our own uh, material on our own computers, as it were. Um, uh, for that matter, how we how we deal with our own social media accounts, you know, as as we die, for instance, the the, the question of what what the what the completion of a life might might feel like in in uh, in, in the world of the internet is only is only developing. Um, yeah. As as we talk about this, one of the things I think that's you know why persecute readers because they're interested yeah. in certain thoughts, right? And so we see this even. Um, with if you encounter certain groups, certain forums on the internet, you go on a watch list because uh, that there are certain there are certain thoughts, certain trains and and threads of thought that lead to certain actions, and that's where uh, controlling uh, and they they've more and more that powers come out. Um, controlling what we're reading is very important. Um, an interesting side of this: it's much easier to yeah. control something that is standardized. And so I, I don't have the full uh, kind of train of thought here, but I, I had on a Chinese uh, historian, uh, Dr. Pamela Crosley, and she had done a lot of work in uh, em, uh, imperial identity making. And one of the things that was fascinating, and this yeah. might be, I, I can't remember all the names, but she, she, the idea stuck with me that there was a Chinese emperor who had uh, sent out uh, servants and administrators throughout the land, and he required that they follow the correct grammar in order to receive any aid from him. Literally to the point where if someone sent him a letter, he would correct it with red ink and send it back until they sent yes. it in correctly, and then they would receive aid. And that's something that's really interesting, and that becomes really clear with things like standardizing certain formats, which makes communication easier. But one of the things we have to think about is by making communication difficult, it is a resistance to bad actors, right? Uh, in the same way that boundaries around certain regions, uh, uh, it's not about not letting the good people in, it's about keeping the bad people out. Now, there's some moral discussions about who are considered bad people, and I understand that. But I think, you know, even as uh, to understand where I'm coming from, even as we look at things going on with Ukraine, like obviously, there's there are bad actors like at the the uh, highest level of morality. We don't have to talk about uh, where it gets um, sketchier, if that makes sense. And so we have the same thing with our thoughts, which are then encapsulated in these in these signs, whether it's uh, our faces, uh, whether it's uh, that are through video. You know, we we talk to each other here, and this is recorded, or it's in the books we read and that we write. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think that's going going on here is that and the, you're uh, absolutely um, fascinated by your, your you're talking about the, the, the drive to simplification and the way that simplification is then more usable. Um, 
and uh, it, it's it's justified on the grounds that it's accessible um, and relevant in some way, but it has other kinds of effect. And one of the things that it's trying to efface, and which which I think is so important about the idea of literature, and perhaps about the idea of writing as well, is that um, what we need to protect here is complexity and ambiguity uh, and misunderstanding as part of the process of understanding. Uh, and you know, both the book as an object and I think literature as, as, a, as a concept and as an experience forces us to accept that understanding doesn't happen immediately, doesn't happen automatically, mm. um, also is not always complete um, or perhaps not even often complete, and that we should be happy about that. We should be happy that it's difficult to understand things and it takes time to understand them. Uh, and we should in some ways relish complexity. Um, you know, it's, it's probably depressing for all of us now to find how Google has kept so far ahead of us that, you know, when we look for things, it's not telling you what you want to know anymore. <laughs> and it's not even answering the question that you're <laughs> asking. It's, it's, it's telling you the most profitable thing it can think of that's closest to the question that you've asked. And I suppose all of us try mm. to put up a, a kind of resistance to that by making our, you know, by making kind of covert uh, uh, searches to, to, to look for, for secret things that, that Google doesn't want us to find, as it were, that we can find instead. And in a, in a way, that is what, what, what books are inviting us to do always when we, when we look at them, to find things that we don't understand and therefore try to make sense of rather than, you know, the communicative novel of, of sort of instant understanding, which I think is, is very problematic. But it, I think it may also Absolutely. be that um, I... the, the connection with, um, when you're saying that, that, there, that there is um, a, a connection with death here, there's something I, I, I tried to write about in, in, in the book, some, one of the things I found most puzzling and obviously most personal about it is that it may be that, that writing and reading uh, as experiences and the book as an object are related to our own mortality in ways that we don't quite, uh, certainly we don't apprehend consciously. And perhaps it's a good thing that we don't apprehend it consciously. But, you know, if, if you take that, those first books that I, that first book of, 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 the, of the, the tale of Troy, which includes uh, Odysseus's wanderings after, uh, uh, supposedly after, after the story is ended and, and the story is completed, Troy is, Troy is finished. It's gone. It's vanquished. It's terrible for the Trojans. Uh, it's less good for the Greeks than they thought it was going to be. But it is over, except that it isn't. We then have, uh, you know, ten years of stories that that won't end and, and, and won't finish. Um, but and, and yet they are contained in, in in this in this object, which itself has a beginning and an end. There is a beginning and there is an end, and that's one of the things I think is is rather beautiful about the the metaphorical status. Of, of of the book as contents is that it's also finite. It, it contains finitude within it, and so lo lots of novels have been highly self conscious about this process. You know, the, the Tristram Shandy you know begins by trying to imagine his own conception because that must be the very very first moment when you can somehow uh, think of yourself uh, as being. And then in, in in theory, of course, it's always working towards death at the end. But death is constantly put off by the act of writing. Uh, the book becomes an enormous digression to stop yourself from dying, even though you know that you, you are dying. Mm. Um, and I, I think actually that connection, which goes back 
actually, the, one of the very, very first stories of writing that occurs in ancient Sumerian literature is a story of Sargon, who is sent off with a letter uh, uh, to, uh, to a king. And of course, the letter contains his own sentence of death. Uh, uh, it doesn't happen. It's, death is obviated. It's the same story as in Hamlet, uh, where Hamlet goes to England with letters uh, that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are going to give to the, to the king of England to put him to death. But uh, Hamlet, you know, with a clever trick, swaps them. And so, uh, as he puts it, I think, you know, not particularly empathetically. Um, so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern go to it. Uh, in other words, he's managed to make the letter into their sentence of death rather than his own sentence of death. But the, the fact that these stories you know, occur all over the place, Erasmus actually had a, a name for it, he called them Spartan letters. So letters that contain your own, uh, a, a secret about your own death, which you don't know about, I think shows that um, this is actually how, how people think about writing, even when they're not aware of it. Um, and, and maybe this is one of the reasons why um, it's not just an instrumental question of censorship, uh, but it is a question of life and death uh, that is that is contained in in the book. It's not, of course, the same as your own life and death, but it is a metaphor for the, the process that that all of us face. Uh, there's something here about um, and it's, it's unfortunate we're drawing to a close in the uh, in the interview because I could talk to you about this for hours. Uh, this is. Uh, something just fascinating and so interesting to me. But uh, as we sit here and, and talk about this, good thinking provides so much power. And and we see this like, you know, from a persuasive, you know, uh, persuasion in the political sphere uh, for solving things. And that's often good thinking is a result of uh, well-chosen language. And so even uh, over and over again, you see magic it seems to be this metaphor for the word and and the rune you know like uh there's different types of uh magic systems yep. that show up in fantasy but also in in the myths and so you have the the person who's able to manipulate words the one who knows the true names of things uh that's yes. you know it's this mystery that you reference all the way back at the beginning that's in the book that's in the writing that the person who understands it is then able to do, uh, and I think it's really just a metaphor, you know, the, the fire bolts or the, the calling down lightning, all of these things are really metaphors for the incredible power of really good thinking encapsulated in good language. Um, is that, is that like a, a, a am I, my tracking, is that a, is that a fruitful path off of your discussion of death? I think you're absolutely spot on about power, and I, I, and I think that um, well, that was one of the, 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 the previous many many previous subtitles for the book that I've had, but um, included the word power. But oh, okay. if, if it is a power, it's it's if, if it is a power, it's a two edged power. Um, on the one mm. hand, uh, the, the experience of of reading as well as the experience of writing uh, is is an enormous medium for freedom. Um, and one of the reasons why governments like to attack people who are reading is because they don't, they might not want them to be free. Uh, they might say they want them to be free. I mean, I think we can probably both think, uh, of, of a, of a constitution that, that <laughs> says it wants people to be free. Uh, but it's not so clear that that's what it really wants. 
Um, so, free, free, but freedom is certainly there, and freedom is, is associated with with literacy uh, and, and the power to become mm-hmm. and the empowerment that's given by education. But of course, actually, the power has another, another kind of meaning meaning to it. Uh, Levi Strauss, in, in his sort of classic essay, uh, the writing lesson, um, uh, talked about actually the the fundamental. Uh, reasoning for, for for writing as a system as opposed to language and speech is enslavement uh, as now it's mm. a pro- it's a problematic statement um, that there is a there, there is a problem here which goes back a long way uh, in terms of prioritizing and idealizing speech as being um, somehow better than writing um, but there is a kind of uh, you know th- there is a certain historical truth in it that that, that writing uh, is used as a way of sorting stuff out, organizing society in a very fundamental way. Literacy is powerful in that sense as well. Um, And what is written on a document um, can be used to enslave. Uh, That was true immediately uh, in 1492 when when, uh, Columbus presented um, indigenous peoples with a document written in a language that they could not possibly understand, telling them, that they were now owned by uh, the, by Spain, mm. uh, unless they objected uh, well, of co- immediately. But of course, they couldn't object because they couldn't read the document. I mean, I mean, I mean it, 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 this has been gone over many times by historians, and I put it in a very simple form. Uh, but it's it's a story that's repeated uh, in in, um, in 19th century America uh, in in the history of of slavery, where literacy is used uh, to offer freedom. To people who are also excluded from it, um, this was true in, in China, in ancient Egypt. Um, there are many ways in which it's true for, for ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which, which of course were slave societies. Although we're taught a very different version of that now in terms of the you know, the origins of the classical ideal, but there is a relationship of literacy and slavery, which is not you know automatic or in some sense you know uh, you can't you can't state it as a sort of uh, a fundamental proof in, in 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 some kind of philosophical sense, but you can see an affinity, and I think that relationship between freedom and 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 enslavement is again important to us to realise that they can be two sides of the same thing, rather than they are automatically opposed to each other in such a way that is easily resolvable by us in our political actions. I think we have to be aware of the fact that we are using language in written form to impose upon people as well as to uh, release ourselves in some sense. And maybe even those two things are are connected in ways that are very troubling. Uh, as you talked about Christopher Columbus and handing over the uh, <laughs> this treaty, you know, which they could not begin to understand, uh, the example that came to mind for people even in the Western world who would consider themselves free, but their freedom is curtailed by this, is the overwhelming nature of terms and conditions to use the most basic services. And it puts you at the mercy of the company that you're hitting accept. Because nobody really reads those. It's almost impossible if to actually, like you can read maybe one, but it's it yeah. is intended to, I won't say enslave you, but it is definitely intended to curtail your freedom in regards to that company, to give them control. Yes. And so I, yes. I th- the, the way that these threads run throughout cultures and time is 
so fascinating to me. Um, yes. uh, as we as we wrap up here, I, I would love to hear your a few more thoughts on uh, death uh, and death in the book. Um, primarily, what's interesting to me is the way that the book both seems to transcend and uh, the dead and give life. You know, it, it, I'm reading, um, and this goes back to the sacredness of books. Uh, yeah, they are repositories of our history and our language, and so that's how you know. For me, it's been incredibly powerful to read uh, books and to talk to people whose perspective I would not, I would otherwise not get. Um, what is what is the value of us communing with the dead in that way, if I can put it that way? Mm. Well, I mean, one of the one of the many kinds of object that I became fascinated about without, you know, expecting to before I started um, in Buddhism, um, and this is sort of a few hundred years ago, uh, say between the eleventh and thirteenth century, in the sort of most in its biggest um, representation. Um, individual letters from Buddhist mm. texts were put into burial urns and, you know, burned and then put into urns and then buried and then uh, treated as themselves as, as sacred spaces. So on the one hand, there's a, there's a sense of the book itself as a kind of relic. I mean, in, in, um, it's, called, it's called Sarira in, in in, in, in Buddhism, but but you could you could think of this in other cults as well. I mean, uh, 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 there are, there's a chapter in the book about about book burial altogether, um, which, which covers uh, a whole range of different cultures and different times. And of course, it's it's an odd thing to do to bury a, a book. Um, there's there's a way in yeah. which um, uh, there's a way in which relics work like this altogether. So you know, when a person dies. Um, their, their remains, in the sense of say their bones, survive, uh, and the bones are taken as a substitution for the person. But both, I suppose, in a hope for survival, um, and in a sense of continued relationship, um, and as a way of mm. marking honour for, for for every person that might have lived. And you can find this well before the history of writing. Um, you, you, there's a fantastic exhibition in London at the moment about Stonehenge, and you know Stonehenge. Uh, predates writing, um, but there there are profoundly mystical cultures surrounding both um, how we treat the dead when they die and also how we relate to the dead. So you know you begin with bones, but you go from bones to images, you know images of the saints, but also books as perhaps the possessions of somebody, but also maybe as in some sense uh, representing them. So. Um, in the eighth century, uh, the, uh, the Rajendri, this codex, you know, it supposedly was a survival of Saint Boniface, and when he was martyred, um, you know, he protected himself mm. with a book, and the book saved him from death because he was being attacked by by swords which could not pierce the book. Um, uh, <laughs> actually, the book that survives is almost certainly not a book that Boniface ever owned. Um, but it's taken not just as a, a substitutional, transitional object, as we might say in psychoanalytic terms, uh, of, of a person the way that a bone might be or an image, um, but as a substitute for a person. Um, and I think we do recognize mm. that somehow 
what books contain. They do, of course, in in one sense, in any case, because one of them, as, as authors have been saying for as long as we know that they've been writing, um, writing a book is a way of surviving your own death. Uh, and mm. we can still read the words of, you know, a, an Egyptian female poet from, you know, whenever it is. I think it's, well, I won't even try to guess. It's certainly in the thousands of years. Um, <laughs> and that's, in that right. sense, we, we, we name her. And in that sense, we can sense mm. her presence with us in a way which should not be possible. Mm. And in some ways, it's not possible except through writing. For it, Writing is the best possible way of doing this. We don't have any better. Societies which have got written records that survive of them are much better understood than those that are not. Perhaps understood is the wrong word for it, actually, because we don't actually understand them. But we have surviving records of them, which we can interpret, um, and which gives a sense that they are still with us. And I, I think that um, although the first purpose of writing might have been to make a record of how many beans you had or, or how the wine crop was doing this year or uh, actually just how deep the River Nile was uh, that year. That may well have been the first reason for it. But very quickly, people gained a sense that actually writing contained both knowledge and information, but also contained selves. Uh, we know that selves are mm. mortal. We know that books are perishable. Books don't last forever. Um, but they do survive. They do outlive us. Um, and they take us with them, as it were. And even if none of you know, even if we don't write, and uh, nonetheless, the idea of writing gain, uh, retains a sense that it, it contains all of us. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, it, it has such a powerful association for us. Thank you. That was a tremendously good answer to a very vague question. So I appreciate it. Um, if you, uh, as we kind of, <laughs> as we, as we wrap up here, is there, uh, what, what's one thing that you would like to leave our listeners with? I suppose it is, it is that sense that I have, um, that we should allow the mystery of what we do mm -hmm. when we read an, uh, a, a book to be more important to us. Not to think of it as just, I mean, uh, mm. literature is often treated as being escapism. And I, and I think that's a very, very profound misunderstanding of it. Um, if we escape, well, it's quite nice to escape. But um, you know, what it does actually is to transfer us into a different kind of world. Um, it makes a world for us mm. just by being there. Um, and that is a mysterious process. It's not transactional. It's not referential in the ordinary sense of the word. Books don't represent the world in any very easy way to understand, any more than pictures do, although pictures do it in a much more obviously representational way than, than books do. So we use these metaphors to try to understand what's going on. But what's going on nonetheless is mysterious, and mysterious in a way that could be sacred or religious, but also could just be about um, what it is to have a mind, what it is to have an imagination. Uh, what it is to mm. to be able to tell a story um, about yourself, about the people that you love, about people you don't love, uh, in, in in a context, um, and I think we you know we tend to be too literal minded about things. 
Um, and we tend to want very literal answers to questions. And actually allowing for the mysteriousness and the ambiguity and the complexity of, of understanding is something that you know we should hold on to. It's precious. Uh, Dr. Brian Cummings, uh, thank you for leaving us with that. I can't think of a better way to end this interview. And thank you so much for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure.